Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And this is the second reading podcast for the week of, what week are we on? August August 2nd, 3rd, something like that? Summer is flying by for us as well as for you, uh, I'm sure. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas. I'm joined by, as you can hear, my colleague Josh Blank. Good morning, afternoon or evening. This week, we want to talk a little bit about the politics of guns on campus as the so-called campus carry law goes into effect here at UT and at public colleges throughout Texas. And if you're wondering why I said public, you'll find out shortly. Then we'll circle back and wrap up the Democratic National Convention last week and the the somewhat surprising politics that have come out of it, um, especially the reactions to the speech by the Khan family. And again, if you don't know what I'm talking about with the Khan family, you'll find out soon enough. But right out of the barrel, sorry, let's start with guns. Uh, Monday, the concealed carry law passed by the last last legislature went into effect uh, in Texas. And as it turned out, by I think what can only be called an unhappy coincidence. It's went into effect on the 50th anniversary of the mass shooting on the UT campus in 1966, which is now, you know, retroactively known as the first mass school shooting in American history. Rather than focus on that, though it may come up, we want to focus on campus carry. Campus carry was uh, a big legislative issue for several sessions. Yeah, it's something that had sort of been been around for a while and it kind of I don't know, you can say it sort of it it persevered. Like there were some ideas early on about, you know, trying to allow for, you know, more guns on K through twelve campuses and that was really a tricky area. But campus carry was something that was sort of always sitting there kind of at the periphery until the twenty fifteen session and then it finally kind of burst through. Although it took a lot of work. Yeah, in some ways it's, you know, without digressing too far. People are rolling their eyes right now. Yeah. I, can, I can feel it. This is all. I can feel the whole, eye rolling. This whole thing is a huge digression, but keep going. <laughs> but the campus, but the campus carry lies really is interesting test case, and this really does connect with things that are we've written about that are in the textbook, etc. Um, of how ideas take a while to germinate in the legislative process very frequently, and and more largely in the public policy process. The guns uh, campus carry was. A little bit of a fringe idea that was seized on by a legislator in 2011 who's no longer in the legislature, frankly, is a way of burnishing his conservative credentials. He was somebody that was a, he was a Republican from San Antonio, but who was known as something of a moderate, mainly because he was pro-choice. He was really the only pro-choice Republican in the Senate delegation, at least publicly. And so he would be in trouble for being pro-choice, and then he would choose issues that he could prove that he was a conservative about. And in 2011, he really went to the mat on campus carry and frankly kind of pissed a lot of people off in the legislature by uh, you know, being insistent about it very late in the 2011 session. Nonetheless, the, that terrain really shifted partially as a result of political change in the state and the infusion of, of an even more powerful conservative presence in the Republican Party and in the legislature, so that in 2015, 
uh, we go into that session with lots of talk about guns, right? I mean, right, bef- right. I mean, before the session even started, uh, you know, there was a sort of a, a large, oh, let me say, a very loud movement, right? Uh, which was looking to ease gun restrictions in the state, and particularly, uh, you know, they were looking for an open carry uh, provision because Texas is actually when it was before the 2015 session was one of the few states that didn't have. Uh, some form of open carry. We have, you know, license. Well, they had a certain form because you, right, you, you could, could carry long right, guns. Right, you could carry long right. guns around, but you couldn't carry handguns openly. You'd have to have uh, a licensed, uh, concealed handgun license into there before you could carry it in a but concealed fashion. But you just couldn't fashion. openly strap it on. Right. But they basically, early in the session, had made clear that they wanted to do, to push for something they called constitutional carry, which is right. basically the notion- Which is even one step beyond open carry. Right. It's a step beyond open carry. It's the notion that because of the Second Amendment, amendment, we are all legally allowed to carry guns. It shouldn't be licensed at all, and we can carry them any way that we want. And this group was very, very loud and very, very active from really before the session even began. Well, and even if you think back, I don't know how much you remember, but there was- I mean, what they did, which was really smart, is the open carry and constitutional carry folks were on the Capitol grounds protesting, toting long guns around legally. Right. The first day of the session, Mm -hmm. opening day and really opening week, they had a series of open and constitutional carry. There was a big conflict with Pancho Navarez, right? They came to his office and he said, you know. Right. The open carry guys went in there and got in an argument with a a Democratic legislator. And then that week, and again, we're getting into the weeds here, but we're going to get into the weeds a little bit here. Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, did an opening session interview for the Texas Tribune with our friend and colleague, Evan Smith, in which he talk down the possibility of you know new open care of open carry legislation passing right he just said he just said he didn't think the votes were there. he didn't think the votes were there which just you know got everybody in an uproar you know you know had people accusing him of selling out the conservatives now that he was lieutenant governor and that really put open carry on the agenda for the lieutenant governor very quickly so at the end of the session we got both a new open carry law and a, and the campus carry law, which was implemented this week uh, at the University of Texas and all over the state. So the idea here is that you know they passed a law that said that public universities and private universities asterisk would come up with their own policies, but that the public universities uh, were really hemmed in on uh, the degree to which they could limit. Uh, concealed carry in different places. So the law was written in a way that made it de facto pretty impossible to keep guns out of classrooms, right. for example. They did, they basically said that the public universities could designate gun-free zones, but that those designations couldn't have the effect of basically you know, removing concealed carry right. from the campus. There had to be a rationale for this, and that was the outer and, bound. And while, and while, you know, sort of the the campuses and then through the campuses, eventually the boards of regents approving these law, these sort of, you know, let's say, uh, particular policies for implementation, while this process was going on, uh, you know, a lot of legislators came out and were very clear, you know, made very clear to the universities and to the board of regents, if you do create policies that have the effect of banning guns on campus, we will come back and make this much, much more strict and take away and really take away any discretion you think you have. Right. And we should mention that now there are three professors at UT that are suing to have this, you know, this law overturned or at least altered. Uh, that case is pending. Um, but the, the politics of this have really continued to evolve. We want to want to play an audio excerpt. Now, this is Senator Brian Birdwell, who was the Senate sponsor of the bill. Uh, the House sponsor was Al- was uh, Alan Fletcher, and Senator Birdwell is a Republican from Waco, 
um, who defended this bill, but also defended the the carve out, if you will, that is the right of of public un- of private universities to opt out. So let's. This is Brian Bar- Birdwell on a on a. I think I think it may be a syndicated radio show, but it's definitely an internet radio show that is sponsored by the National Rifle Association, the major interest group in favor of gun rights. And this is him on the Cammon Company show right after the bill, or as the bill was was going through the process and was about to be passed. Our constitutional duty is to protect all constitutional rights equally, not favor one to the detriment of another. And, you know, we could talk about other things that your show is not themed to, and I won't bore you with those, but... <laughs> You know, a a private university, education is a commodity just like coffee. So whether it's the coffee shop that wants to preclude the the concealed carry holder in Texas or or any other state that that, uh, uh, honors the private property wishes of that uh, that independent business, that is that property owner's right. And then at that point, the CHL or the Second Amendment um, uh, enthusiast can make a marketplace decision on whether to to, um, patronize that business or not. There's no different with uh, private property rights for universities and their property and education being a commodity. And so one of the things that we did was when we came back over, we asked for conference committee because I wanted that taken out so that we could not only protect the Second Amendment rights of citizens of Texas, but protect the private property rights of the private property owners in those private universities we still make them go through the decision-making process that we make the publics go through, but they have the ability to decide we don't want this on our campus or not because that is their private property, no different than a mom-and-pop on the uh, on the corner uh, courthouse square. Now, there's a couple of interesting things about this, and, and one is, you know, a kind of broad point that, you know, uh, you, you often have issues in which people are intensely interested like gun rights. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's happened with gun rights is that it's given rise to what some people, and I think it makes sense, it sounds derogatory, but I don't think it is, called kind of Second Amendment funda- fundamentalism, which views the right to bear arms expansively and fundamentally and, and as a right, you know, in some ways, the way people view the First Amendment almost right. as something that, Inviolous. you know, it's kind of gets a pride of place right. and that you really have to have a reason and a very good reason to to limit people's right to carry some guns. Might, some, some people might call it a fundamental freedom. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, what you're seeing here is that is is that as this went through the process, I kind of suspect that this was something that folks had not really thought through completely, that mm-hmm. the private universities were going to be a different kind of issue, and that it did bump up against another kind of fundamental right, particularly for conservatives, and that's property rights. And, you know, you don't really have to expand. I think Senator Birdwell made a pretty good gave a pretty good explanation for why he was thinking about that. And the political process tends to bring out these competing interests. And in this case, there was a real fundamental collision. And in terms of the politics of this, we should also note that uh, Senator Birdwell has one of the the major private universities in the state. Baylor is in his district. And it's hard for me to imagine he didn't get an earful from the Baylor regents and maybe even the then Baylor president, Ken Starr. And in fact, Baylor hat did fairly quickly opt out and and not allow and does not allow concealed carry on campus. Right. Only only one private university actually decided to allow concealed carry on campus. And the politics of this are really interesting too, because you know, if you think about the mechanics, 
by default, the private universities were basically by law adopting uh, concealed carry on their campuses unless they opted out. So what this allows a politician to do is to say, yeah, I passed, uh, you know, concealed carry on college campuses statewide to the extent that these private universities chose not to opt into it. One, it's their property rights. And two, that's not that's not on me. (laughs) Right. Exactly. That is on them. I mean, it's interesting. I think there's a sort of I mean, at the time, I kind of hadn't thought about this as much, but there is a sense where you say, well, you know, does. Does the state have the ability to, you know, force, you know, concealed carry onto private institutions? And the answer is sure, because the fact is there's tons of state money that goes to these institutions in the form of scholarships and other things sure. that they could say they would withhold or whatever if they didn't pass this law. There are ways that the legislature could have done this, but they didn't want to deal with the politics of it. And so this is actually a very nice and neat way to get around it, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Now, the the other the other piece of this that we want to talk about quickly, I think, is the fact that public opinion is very interesting around guns, particularly in Texas. I think we have this sense Texas is a conservative state, uh, you know, self-images and cultural images around guns, very powerful. Um, but public and public opinion looks kind of evenly divided, edging towards gun rights at times. But then when you really unpack that, um, we see a pattern that we see in a lot of issues like this, where public opinion looks at the top level overall, even kind of evenly divided. Right. So so going into that session, uh, you know, in February of 2015, you know, when asked about campus carry, 47 percent of Texas voters said they supported this notion of, of the right of individuals to carry uh if they're licensed, you know, concealed on campus, and 45% were in opposition. So it's basically evenly split. But if A you result look, which we got a lot of crap from from our colleagues. Sure. <laughs> if you look just at Republicans, 69% were supportive of it, 25% were opposed. And if you look at Democrats, only 23% were supportive, 70% were opposed. So the way you get to sort of an even split is the fact that the parties are completely, you know, at opposite ends of the spectrum on this issue. Right. Uh, You know, among self-identified Tea Party Republicans, 86 percent were in favor. Um, Right. The Tea Party being kind of the conservative core of what is, you know, the Republican Party. And, you know, folks that were, you know, the the driver's seat dramatizes it, over-dramatizes, maybe a little too hyperbolic. But, you know, the, the Tea Party, people that identify as the Tea Party are mobilized, politically active conservatives who, you know, are given a lot of attention by... Republican elected officials in the legislature that have strong part Tea Party contingents in their districts. Right. Because, you know, what it really comes down to is these are the people who are going to vote in primary elections, right. which is the main concern for a lot of these legislators. I mean, an interesting thing that kind of comes out of sort of the, the overall politics of that session around guns that we sort of started with, you know, we asked in that same poll about uh, basically how people felt about Texans right to carry guns around the state kind of more universally yeah more universally in public places and what we found is that you know 45% of Texans were basically happy with the status quo at the time which is you know you can carry a you know a a concealed handgun if it's licensed that's again 45% overall that included 50% of Republicans actually so most Texans were pretty happy with the status quo and interestingly in terms of the political culture in the state 43% of Democrats yeah 43% of Democrats now the other 40 or 43% of Democrats wanted there to be no guns carried in public places. But this sort of ex- kind of comes to a theme in you know, public opinion in Texas, which is the Texas Democrats tend to be a little bit more conservative than elsewhere. And that's kind of actually what oftentimes drives the sort of actual conservatism of Texas beyond right. other states. But when we asked you know, about constitutional carry, only 10% of Texans wanted to make the state sort of a constitutional carry state. This was only 14% of the GOP. 
but it was 30% of of self-identified Tea Party Republicans, so the same group. So one of the things that you kind of also see in this process is sort of, and you see this in public opinion, is one, how sort of these overall trends can hide some important underlying partisan differences. And when you're trying to understand why something becomes a priority, if you just look at the overall results, you're actually missing a lot of the story. But the other piece of this is sort of, I guess, a case of, you know, pluralism or whatever, you know, if you want to call it that. <laughs> pluralism or whatever is what I they just, call it in political science. In political science. I know. <laughs> I wish I was a political scientist. Um, but 30% of Tea Party Republicans were for sort of the, for this um, uh, constitutional carry. And again, this is a very active group. So it wasn't a large group of Texans. And again, constitutional carry being... Free, unfettered... Complete, unfettered, actually no government regulation of... Guns at carrying all. Carrying guns. Right. And so this is, you know, not a large group in Texas, but it's an intense minority. So to some degree, you know, some of it was the way Patrick handled it at the beginning of the session. Some of it was this group sort of uh, loud intensity before the session started. But also, you know, this is how a small but intensely mobilized group can actually make policy change. They didn't get exactly what they wanted, but to the extent that, you know, campus carry had been this right. this sort of fringe policy that had been floating around for a couple of sessions and all of a sudden got passed in the session. Part of it was we moved to an open carry state, but also we didn't go to constitutional carry. What else what else can we give you? Right. What else what else can we say we've done? Right. Because going into the session, I think, you know, people that were inside the process and we had both higher education chairs here, you know, basically there was very little doubt that we were probably going to get campus carry. The interesting thing is that we got open carry. And I think open carry was seen as a much more extreme position. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they passed it. I mean, they, you know, it took some effort, but it wasn't. Yeah. Most of the arguments around open carry were were. I mean, that I recall were pretty fringe. I mean, they're sort of fringe issues. There's sort of acceptance that the law was going to get passed. It was more about, you know, what are, how does this affect policing? You know, right. can police ask you to see your if, license if, if you're the, open yeah, carry? If the police gun? see you open carry, Is are that they reason allowed enough? To... So there's things like that were yeah. kind of some of the big arguments actually that were interesting and complicated in their own way, but it wasn't about like whether this was going to pass. And it did make us look to the rest of the country a little bit on the fringe. Again, it was one of those things where the subtleties really get lost when the New York Times is writing a story that says, hey, in Texas, they want to be able to openly carry guns. Mm-hmm. There they go again. All right. So this is some of the background on as we go into camp, uh, with campus carry on campus. And I think uh, on the UT campus, um, you know, and I think we'll hear a lot more about this once the long semester resumes. One, pe- one like fact we should add just before we jump to the next topic is, you know, and people said this a lot and I think, you know, this will change, but remember you have to be 21 years old to carry, to get a concealed handgun license. So the fact is, is (laughs) we don't want to give anybody the wrong idea. You do have to have a permit, a CHL and go through the training to have a gun on campus. It only takes like four hours. I hear it's pretty easy. It's, it's, it's worse than easy having gone through it. But the point being most college students on campus are actually not eligible to get the license and therefore legally carry the gun on campus. Now, again, when you change the rules, all this stuff changes. But having said that, that rule did not change. That rule did not change, and the expectation is not that there's going to be just you know tons and tons of students with guns on campus. Yeah, fact, uh, President Fenvis was on the News Hour last night and repeated the statistic that's been widely you know sort of circulated, came out of the study group at UT that less than five percent of the UT population is expected to even be eligible to carry a gun. That is to be old enough and to have the permit. All right, so. 
Maybe that's like, so it's cool. Yeah, it's cool, guys. <laughs> not exactly what I meant to say, but that's kind of what it sounded like. And, you know, I think we'll hopefully, well, I'm not going to say that. All right. Um, topic two. Let's go back to the convention. So so what do you think, Josh? How did the Democratic National Convention go for Hillary Clinton? And how do we know? Well, I think it went pretty well. I'm just going to step out. <laughs> okay. So there's there's two, you know, I mean, really what you look at in a lot of cases is the news coverage because the convention is, a, you know, a blip in time, but the news coverage kind of lives on. And it's not only that it lives on in the way that it's reported on in, in the moment, but it's sort of, you know, what is the story that carries forward from these two conventions and, you know, sort of on the heels of the DNC, you know, the news coverage focused on, on basically two two main themes, right? One was just, you know, the the disparity in management between the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention. Now, we talked last week about some of those issues with the Republican Convention, right. and the Democratic Convention was just seen as a, just a very well-managed affair from kind of start to finish in terms of the themes being consistent, the fact that there was nobody, no big-time speakers didn't endorse Hillary Clinton. Right. You know, the concern about uh, unity with the Sanders people was basically taken taken out of the out of play after yeah, I mean, it was a farce this moment on Monday. Right, it was a big thing on Monday. I mean, when we did the last podcast, it was still a little bit of an open question about how that was going to play out. And it really didn't seem and, like an issue the rest of the week. Yeah, it was it was pretty fine. And you know, this you know, we're conservative media. I think you know accused the networks with. Maybe a grain of truth, but not a lot that they were undercovering what dissent there was. Mm -hmm. But, you know, nonetheless, the convention was managed in a way that that was easy. And that was something that obviously the, the GOP had not managed. Right. I mean, part of it is, you know, I mean, I, you know, we don't need to beat on the Republican National Convention that much. But like if you think about, you know, the lineup and the and sort of the the level of the speakers, you know, it's pretty easy at the Republican Convention to cut away from Scott Baio. Or, Anthony Sabato Jr. Yeah, or even, but even, or even, you know, sort of like you know, someone who's seen as a riding starlight, like a like a Mary Fallon or whomever, and trying to, you know, basically who's giving a you know a pretty uninteresting speech by all accounts. It's Students out there now are googling Mary Fallon. Hopefully, I hope you do or not. <laughs> but you know, with Democrats, sort of, you know, were they going to cut away from Bill Clinton to show somebody? Not really, you know. And I think, let alone Katy Perry. Right, I and mean, but the fact is, had George W. Bush spoken for Donald Trump at the convention, they wouldn't have cut away from him either. You know, but he was nowhere to be found. He was nowhere to be found. So the one, so that said, one of the big takeaways was sort of the focus on management. The other was this sort of usurpation of like the patriotism mantle. Patriotism slash optimism. Right. You know, yeah. basically since Reagan, you know, the Republicans have sort of tied their, you know, sort of conservative principles with this idea of seeing America as, you know, exceptional and this, you know, place where anything can happen. It's always morning in America. It's always morning in America in the Republican Party. And if you'd watched the Republican convention, it was not morning in America. It was very dark and very I think dour. It was like it was like four in the morning. Right. You four know, in the you morning. can't get you're locked out of the house. You can't get in. Right. You're, Nobody's home. You're ordering a weight loss band on TV or something. <laughs> yeah. No, but but basically for the Democrats, you know, there was these, you know, American flags and chants of USA. And in addition to like not only sort of sort of taking on the mantle of the patriotic party, which the Republicans have kind of owned for themselves for better or worse and kind of sort of popular understanding, you know, they also were able to inject into patriotism this idea of diversity, that what patriotism really means and love for country really means is love for inclusion. And they were able to actually redefine the term in a way that was beneficial to them. So those were sort of the two kind of things. There was a lot of prominent Republican elites taking to Twitter and elsewhere and saying, the Democrats just stole our stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, and some pretty, yeah, some pretty prominent, some pretty prominent Republicans, you know, saying, you know, I, I wish our convention had been like this, right? Um, in terms of the the tone and the optimism, so, um, so that's one one that was the media coverage, right? That was the media coverage, and then there's sort of the polling stuff, which we're always kind of interested, in, right? right? Which we talked about last, and we talked about the idea of a bounce. That is the the notion that you know we ex- one would expect that if a convention goes reasonably as planned. Mm-hmm and people are paying attention to it, that the poll numbers of the candidate being promoted by that party that, at their convention will go up, and we call that the poll bounce. Right, and remember, this is a reflection of the fact that the party has basically a week to control the content that the media is going to cover. <laughs> theoretically. So, theoretically. That's the idea. So, in an NBC, basically looking to today, you know, in an NBC News Survey Monkey poll, uh, you know, Clinton was up by one point last week. This week, she's up by eight over Donald Trump. Uh, in a CNN ORC poll, among Clinton supporters, uh, 58% said that they were voting for her as opposed to voting against Trump. And that was up 10 points from the last time they polled that. Uh, Gallup found a slight bump for her so that for people watching the Democratic uh, convention, uh, those saying they were, they were likely to support Clinton increased by four points. However, for those of you who watched the GOP convention, this was like this is the this is the big result. Yeah, this is like this is just for people the- watching the GOP convention. There was a 15 point drop in those saying that they were likely to support Trump after watching the convention. And I think this- the only thing you can say to that is ouch. Ouch, that and hurts. also that really hurts. And just to kind of go back to what the conventions are for, this is the first negative effect ever measured by Gallup, and this goes back to 1984 that they've been asking. So you watch the convention, did it make you more likely or less likely to support this candidate? And in all instances, Democratic convention, Republican convention, it always increases the likelihood of supporting that candidate because of these things that we're talking about. To see a drop and a big drop is right. just totally unprecedented. So in terms of the technic, you know, the technicalities of the bounce, she got a single figure bounce, it looks like, but higher than what Trump got in his. Trump was looking around four or five points and but she's looking the, about seven uh, or eight, it looks like. Right. But the but but the but the other kind of things that are coming out of the polling is that there was a there was something of a negative effect coming out of the 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 Republican convention. And I have to go back to what we said last week is that you know, these don't tell us what's going to happen in the election right no. now. They tend to come out in the wash over the long run. And for the most part, they tend they tend to uh, remind the faithful. It's not about necessarily, right. you know, it's not that the Democratic convention made a bunch of Republicans say, oh, now I really like Hillary Clinton. I'm going to vote for her. But it's all it's more so about solidifying the Democratic base. The Republican convention is supposed to be more about solidifying the Republican base and then moving on from there. Right. Now, I guess, you know, as we look at those Gallup numbers and we'll see whether they're outliers or, you know, how durable those effects are, it may well be that the the conventional patterns will reassert themselves. But there is the possibility that like so many other unconventional things here, that it it's going to look differently this time, and largely because of the dynamic involving Donald Trump and his essentially usurpation of the Republican Party from you know the 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 plurality of Republican elites. And I think this was nowhere more apparent than the big story that really came out of the Democratic convention, and as it con- turns is out, continuing. that is yeah continuing as we go. And you know this this uh, revolved around the speech by Kazir and Kazala Khan. Who talked about their son, Humayun, who at the, at the Democratic Convention, and their son was a veteran who was killed in Iraq. Right, he was a captain. He was a captain who was uh, killed in 2004 by a by a car bomb. Right, and he and he was you know he received medals for this. I mean, I think he ran out in front of his company. It was kind of an undeniably heroic act and situation. Should say. And- 
Muslim Americans. And yeah, Muslim Americans, they were uh, the parents, immig- he was American born, the parent, I believe, the parents, yeah. or they immigrated when they he was immigrated a kid. They immigrated when he was two years old. Okay, so they immigrated when he was two years old from Afghanistan, but prior, but prior, this was in the 90s, this mm-hmm. was was prior to the war in Afghanistan and prior to, to 9-11. So let's hear one of the, the, uh, the, the audio excerpts from the Khan speech at the Democratic Convention. Have you ever been to Arlington Cemetery? Go look at the graves of brave patriots who died defending United States of America. You will see all faiths, genders, and ethnicities. You have sacrificed nothing and no one we cannot solve we cannot solve our problems by building walls sowing division we are stronger together now we should you know uh, point out that the you that Mr. Khan is referring to is Donald Trump. It was a direct, you know, it was a direct uh, address to Trump and obviously spoke to many of the elements of the Trump campaign. Uh, got lots of, got lots of publicity. Um, Trump was asked about this then on the Sunday morning talk shows. Uh, let's just go straight to an excerpt from this is Trump talking to George Stephanopoulos on this week on ABC. There was a man named Kaiser Khan speaking at the Democratic Convention. His son, Captain Humayun Khan, was killed serving in Iraq. And he had some very tough questions for you. He said you wouldn't have even let his son in America. He, he doesn't had- know. He doesn't know that. I saw him. He was, uh, you know, very emotional and probably looked like uh, a nice guy to me. His wife, uh, if you look at his wife, she was standing there. She had nothing to say. She probably, maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say. You tell me, but plenty of people have written that. Uh, she, uh, she was extremely quiet and it looked like she had nothing to say. A lot of people have said that. Uh, and personally, uh, I watched him. I wish him the best of luck. George. What would you say to that father? Well, I'd say we've had a lot of problems with radical Islamic terrorism. That's what I'd say. We have a lot of problems where you look at San Bernardino, you look at Orlando, you look at the World Trade Center, you look at so many different things. You look at what happened to the priest over the weekend in Paris where his throat was cut, 85-year-old beloved Catholic priest. You look at what happened in Nice, France a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'd say you got to take a look at that because something's going on and it's not good. He said you have sacrificed nothing and no one. Well, that sounds, uh, who wrote that? Did uh, Hillary's uh, scriptwriters write it? How would you answer that, Father? What sacrifice have you made for your country? I think I've made a lot of sacrifices. Uh, I work very, very hard. I've created thousands and thousands of jobs, tens of thousands of jobs. Uh, I think Those I've are sacrifices? Oh, sure. I think they're sacrifices. I think when I can employ thousands and thousands of people, take care of their education, take care of so many things, even in military, I mean, I was very responsible along with a group of people for getting the Vietnam Memorial built in downtown Manhattan, which to this day people thank me for. Uh, I raised and I have raised millions of dollars for the vets. I'm helping the vets a lot. I think my popularity with the vets is through the roof. So where do you really begin on that? I guess you could begin by rounding that up, rounding that, doing a roundup of those comments by saying he basically, you know, jumps in the hole on gender, 
on culture and ethnicity and on class. He basically, you know, so he, he makes this cultural reduction. Uh, uh, Mr. Khan's wife was standing there. She later came out, had an op-ed the next later that Sunday and saying, basically, she's just too crushed by the loss of her son to really address it without breaking down. She was in tears as she left the stage. Um, so he looks, you know, he kind of implies she was not allowed. He didn't apply. He says, basically, she wasn't allowed to speak, just kind of a cultural slight. Trading in stereotypes, certainly. And then when they, you know, they they asked what he would say, he said, "Well, you know, we have to worry about people uh, from Middle Eastern and uh, from Middle Eastern countries being terrorists uh, when their son had been in the military." And then when asked about whether he sacrificed, his sacrifice is basically all the time that he spent building his business, building his business. Now. Donald Trump has gotten pretty far by being unconventional. And every time we think he's hit a limit case, it seems like maybe he has not. Right. So now the question is, is this a limit case? And what, what does that mean? Well, and also, what, what would the conventional response have been? And the conventional response would have been, first of all, there's a couple things here. I mean, one, you know, the speech was really well received that that uh, Kazir Khan gave, but it wasn't in prime time. It wasn't something that was going to be this perpetual thing that was likely to, you know, kind of continue throughout the campaign. It's not like the Clinton campaign really wants to have because you're kind of out there like as a surrogate for them. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a, a good moment for the campaign and they picked it for a reason, right? You have this, you know, again, a Muslim family who's emigrated to America. Military service. Military service. They've, you know, made, you know, people say, you know, the ultimate sacrifice. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, they're sort of unimpeachable. You know, as, as sort of as Americans and as citizens and as contributing to the country. One would think. One would think. And it would be so easy to just say something along the lines of, hey, I thank them for their service and their sacrifice. And, you know, they're certainly allowed to have their opinions. I don't agree with I them. I certainly feel their loss and, and wish you know, them the best. And period. Right. But in some ways, by being so unconventional and by going back and sort of, you know, needling them back you know, this isn't some public figure. <laughs> this isn't, you know, a politician of, of the of the other party or the Republican Party where he's saying, you know, basically, this is not some elite or some, you know, media personality. Right. This is just an ordinary family. He could even have gone halfway and just picked on the husband. Yeah, could have. That would have been something. <laughs> right? <laughs> now, I mean, so what, you know, but what is, what is he trying to do here? Yeah. I mean, what he's trying to do is he's trying to sort of keep this in his terrain, which is to say, this isn't about, I'm not criticizing them. This is about, you know, Islamic terrorism. Right. Put it and back in, the, in a different but, frame, but it's. But it's really tricky here. I mean, the problem is, and this is sort of look, you know, let's. And I think it would take subtlety to do that. It would take some subtlety. But I mean, here's an example of why this is sort of a tricky area. And this is sort of why the Democrats chose to put him up there too, which is even in Texas, you know, we asked in the la in our last poll in June you know, about different groups in society and how much discrimination they face. And in Texas, you know, 73% of voters say that Muslims face a lot or some discrimination. And that includes 64% of Republicans. Right. This is not one of those, you know, <laughs> yeah. polarized response things like we talked about with gun control where Democrats and Republicans feel differently. You know, again, a majority of Republicans say so. Even amongst those who say they're voting for Trump because they want him to be president. And again, not voting against Hillary. These are, you know, solid Trump supporters. A majority, 54% say that Muslims face a lot or some discrimination. Even among those who support a ban on Muslim immigration, 63% say Muslims face a lot or some discrimination. Maybe they want to ban immigration to prevent them from being discriminated against. Maybe. They're, they're doing it for their own good. Um, 
But at the same time, you know, where this kind of gets complicated for Trump, especially is, you know, the military is the most favorably viewed institution, you know, basically ever. And that is the thing that really just, you know, it's hard not to look at that and think synaptic misfire, rookie mistake. There's just no way. Right. I mean, 92% of Texas Republicans have a favorable view of the military. So to the extent that you're attacking, you know, what they call a gold star mother, it's just, there's no win there for you. Right. And gold star is the designation for parents that have lost a, a, a son or daughter in combat. So the question is, you know, military service, you know, there's a sort of idea now and a lot of sort of because Trump is still talking about this and there's a lot of sort of, you know, buzzing in the media. And yeah, as we record this, analysts. it's two days later. Right. And this is still and going it's still on. going strong and, and, and they're still commenting on it. Um, but the president, you know, kind of came down this morning on Trump about this over the weekend. Greg Abbott, governor of Texas, uh, also said that, you know, essentially Trump should shut up about these people. Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell said that they didn't agree. You know, John McCain, who certainly is no fan of Trump and Lindsey Graham, likewise, have come out pretty strongly saying this is not. Yeah. You know, well, the and, McCain, and McCain was really, you know, this has been connected with the comments that Trump made about McCain last year. He was at a forum, I mm-hmm. think, or one of these town hall meetings and asked about and he asked about McCain criticizing him. And he basically said that McCain, who had been obviously a POW for many years during tortured. The, and tortured during the Vietnam War, that, you know, he basically didn't think much of McCain because he got that he preferred soldiers to not be captured. Right. So he's not a war hero. And he survived that. Trump. Maybe, and maybe that's, you know, maybe he survived that. He feels like he can survive, you know, maybe. anything when it comes to the military. But it's, it, it, I, I think... It's it's hard to really look at this and think of it as strategic. No, and there's, you know, we were talking about it earlier, and I was thinking about you saying, you know, I, you know, there's, you know, what is the strategy here? I, you know, I don't. This is one of those things where it's hard to see that there's a, a strategy here. No, and so then the question becomes, does it matter, right? Yeah. And I mean, and the thing is, is on its own, probably not. Right. And part of this is, you know, there's a bunch of things that people learn about the candidates over the course of the campaign. And, you know, whether you're likely to like internalize that and make it part of like your store of information about a candidate depends on how you feel. If you're a Hillary Clinton supporter, this is this is terrible. This is awful. Right. Right. If you're a Donald Trump supporter, you know, either you'll kind of you can you can couch it in terms that make you sort of accept why he's doing what he's doing or, you know, whatever. Or you just ignore it. Well, this is something we talked about a little bit last week in another context. I mean, to the extent that it causes you maybe some cognitive dissonance that you're having to say, well, I really support Donald Trump, but I think this is really kind of awful. You know, in a partisan setting like this, with the negative feelings you have about Hillary Clinton, you wind up adjusting the dissonant part to your support for Trump. You de-emphasize it. You rationalize it. You look for other kinds of information that help you rationalize it. You know, oh, well, you know, Khan is an immigration lawyer who works on visas, so of course he must be a bad guy. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so the thing is, but but for the people who aren't so, don't have such strongly attached opinions either way, let's say, especially... You know, this kind of goes. This, this is goes a, in the compost it goes, pile. <laughs> yeah, well, it goes. I would say it goes in, the, in another mark in the negative ledger. Yeah, right on in your in your con column, right? Right, to, <laughs> your, con not, column. your con column. C O N C O N con, right? And you know, the fact is, is if you if you just add up enough of those over time, it forms a general impression that's going to eventually hurt. Does this one incident? Is this one incident going to make some? big change among, you know, like, are we going to see, you know, among the polling all of a sudden now we're yeah. going to see Clinton up, up, you know, 20 because of what, no. Yeah. There's no silver bullet here for the, for the, for the Clinton campaign or for the Democrats. But it's but part I think, of painting an overall impression that is, you know. I, th- I think, and again, this sounds a little 
mercenary, but in pure political terms. A, if you're a demo, if you're a Democrat or you're a Democratic strategist, you're handicapping this campaign. It's undeniably a windfall, at least in the short and medium term, plus mm-hmm. for the Democrats that just came out of the convention is almost like an accidental, you know, it's like an extra. Yeah, it's a bonus. <laughs> it's a I little mean. bonus. Um, and for Republicans, it's another headache. And for your Republican elite, like the people we've been talking about, if you're a, you know, a Mitch McConnell or a Paul Ryan or a John, or a John McCain, it's just, it's just a forehead slapper. You just, you just going, ah, this is going to be a really long campaign. Self-inflicted wounds are the worst. And the thing is, I mean, again, for those Republican elites, I mean, they don't want to be running, you know, spending most of their time campaigning, trying to deal with Donald Trump's comments. Cause about, they've got their own stuff going on. I mean, right. they've got their own races to win or their own, you know, irons in the fire here. So. Exactly. All right. So I think, I think we're going to close it out there. That's uh, it for this week's second reading. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. The second reading podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and the Project 2021 Development Studio at the University of Texas at Austin.